Hello, I'm Earl Fontenelle, and you are listening to The Schwepp, the secret history of Western esotericism podcast, online at schwepp.net. Episode 34, Mystery and Initiation in Plato. Few ideas in the repertoire of Western esotericism have resonances quite as deep as those of the concept of initiation. These resonances extend beyond esoteric currents and into mainstream usage. The definition of esoteric, which we discussed in our very first episode of the podcast, taken not from some grimoire or some work of recondite philosophy, but from the concise Oxford Dictionary of Current English, 1990, defined the term as, quote, meant only for the initiated. Thus, a term, initiation, which, as we've seen, had its origins in the special rites known to the Greeks as teletai or mysteria or orgiai, and to the Romans as mysteria or initiamenta, has become a commonplace term for any kind of exclusive circle of knowledge, be it about the most profound or the most petty subjects. But it is also true to say that the idea of initiation has had and has maintained until the present day a particularly emphatic force and a specific technical meaning in Western esoteric currents of thought. To be initiated, speaking generally, in the esoteric context is to become privy, not just to any old knowledge that is available only to a limited group. It is to become, in some fundamental way, changed, made better, brought not only into a secret, but into a new state of being, but usually through the acquisition of some special knowledge. Now, as we've seen in our discussion of the ancient mystery cults, they were about a change of status, but they don't seem to have been about attaining new knowledge, or at least this is not the main point of what initiation was about. There were, in many cases, secret teachings, as we know, often in the form of the cult myth, but evidence suggests that these myths weren't necessarily secrets in the really strict sense that you might regard something like military secrets as secrets. They were rather items of information discursively labeled as secret wisdom, and thus to be discussed openly only under certain stylistic strictures. The main instances preserved from antiquity of people having revealed the mysteries, like Alcibiades and his loutish crew at Athens, or episodes in surviving writers which, as far as we can tell, reveal certain aspects of genuine mystic teachings, such as the description in Book 11 of Apuleius's Metamorphoses of the Mysteries of Isis, or even Book 6 of the Aeneid, with its Orphic Bacchic elements. All these types of texts prove that there wasn't really an inviolable veil of total secrecy cast over these matters. And it may be that the point here is simply that although there were secret doctrines going along with mystery initiation, the doctrines, knowledge of the doctrines, was not the point of initiation. The point was the ritual itself, the experience. As we've seen, Aristotle, in a fragment which isn't entirely easy to interpret, nevertheless tells us that initiates into the Eleusinian mysteries didn't need to learn anything, but rather undergo something and be put into a certain state. Whatever this means exactly, it must certainly point to something seen as concrete, possibly simply a belief in the efficacy of rituals in causing concrete change. And that even if there was some teaching, and there was in Eleusis, it wasn't the point. Or rather, the initiation itself consisted in the ritual, primarily, not in the teaching. 
Learning the secret knowledge didn't make one an initiate. However, in Western esotericism, again, speaking generally, we see a transfer of the idea of initiation, whereby it comes to refer very much not to a ritual, primarily, but to the acquisition of knowledge, but knowledge of a qualitatively different kind from the everyday. The idea of a change of status is by no means abandoned in Western esoteric accounts of initiation, far from it. We're not dealing here with mainstream meaning of initiation, that is, becoming part of the in-crowd in some given circumstance. We are still very much in the realm of the fundamental change, whereby the initiate is never the same again after the initiation. He's become more divine, he's become more powerful, he holds the secrets of nature or supernature, he's transformed by this knowledge he's acquired. Or the knowledge acquired may be something which transcends knowledge altogether, an ineffable state of consciousness or a fundamental realization that forever changes the initiate's view of reality, or a state, or a, there's a, a number of ways that these moments are referred to in different traditions. However, whatever the specifics of the case, we're no longer dealing here in Western esotericism primarily with rituals. Now, I can hear a chorus of Freemasons and other esoteric practitioners howling at me that ritual initiation is, of course, still alive and well in Western esotericism, and by no means am I denying that. We might look at Freemasonry or other secret societies, we might look at Sufi orders, we can consider Hasidic Kabbalist circles, and all of these traditions and more have ongoing, very important ritual practices of initiation, and we'll be discussing these in due course. But what I am arguing is that there's been a move toward understanding the concept of initiation as some kind of epistemological phenomenon. Initiation primarily changes the mind or the perspective of the initiant. It doesn't change the initiant through ritual means into a new being with no change of their thought processes necessarily. And this shift in understanding of what initiation is, is in part, wait for it, yes, in part, the legacy of Plato and Platonism. In Platonism, the loose movement of interpreters of Plato who arose under the Roman Empire, and the most important single antique source for Western esotericism, it must be said, in Platonism, it became a commonly understood notion that pursuing Platonist philosophy was initiation, or even was the true initiation surpassing the ritual mysteries, just as Plato's understanding of the gods surpassed the traditional folk understanding of the gods, which we find in Homer and vernacular pagan religion from antiquity. Most famously, the second century Platonist writer Theon of Smyrna, about whom we will be speaking in a later episode, elaborately describes the course of reading the Platonic dialogues as a step-by-step -step initiatory process, drawing on the language of the Phaedo and the Phaedrus. So, reading Plato in the proper order and with the proper attention has become an initiation. Much later in antiquity, Proclus's commentary on Plato's Republic is full of references to the esoteric hermeneutics of the dialogue as a form of initiation. Again, reading as initiation, a theme which also appears in Marinus, the biographer of Proclus, whose mystagogy of Plato is also based in a reading of the Platonic texts and is to be properly prepared for by a course of the, quote, preliminary and lesser mysteries, end quote, of Aristotle. So we see here textual interpretation as initiation, and we also see here um, a structured 
path of initiation, which might have a prefatory purification in the form of reading Aristotle, the lesser thinker. This approach is clearly laid out in the wonderful 2nd century CE on Isis and Osiris of Plutarch, one of the most important transmitters of Platonism to subsequent traditions in Western esotericism. On Isis and Osiris is a gem. It claims to be an account of the native Egyptian cult of Isis and Osiris, but scholars don't really give it much cred as a source for genuine Egyptian ideas. Indeed, it turns out that Egyptian wisdom is, yes, you guessed it, Platonist wisdom hiding beneath a veil of esoteric symbolism given to it by those most iconic of wise barbarians, the Egyptian temple priests. After a discussion of different ritual vestments used in the mysteries of Isis and Osiris by these very temple priests, which Plutarch reads as representing the multiplicity of the world of sense and the unity of the noetic world, respectively. Plutarch then goes on to define the highest part of philosophy, attainment to the level of nous and direct knowledge of the forms, as the epoptic division of philosophy. So epopteia was one of the formal names for the act of beholding sacred sites, which was the culmination of some mystery cults, including that at Eleusis. These sites may have been props or religious paraphernalia of some kind, and uh, dramatic lighting seems to have been a popular additional effect. Mirrors may have been used in some mysteries as well. So that which is epoptic has reference to the final revelation, the holy of holies in a mystic context. This is what Plutarch has to say about the epoptic division of philosophy. This is why Plato and Aristotle call this division of philosophy epoptic, since those who through reason have left behind this realm of opinion, mixture, and diversity, and spring out into the primary realm of the simple and immaterial, fully in contact with the pure truth of it, suppose that they possess the summation of philosophy as through an initiation. End of quote. So, hopefully our discussions of Plato, particularly of Plato's Republic, will make these epistemological details clear to non-specialist listeners. We're talking about leaving the realm of opinion and mixture and entering the realm of purity and immateriality. And of course, this is the description of the journey up the divided line in the Republic or out of the cave in the Republic or up through the cosmic spheres to the world of forms in terms of the ascent myth of the Phaedrus. This is what Plato in many of his middle and late dialogues is really, really obsessed with this journey out of the deceptive world of bodies and into the primary world of true immaterial realities. Now, Platonist philosophy then could be likened to initiation, both in the process of reading Plato's texts and also in the actual inner ascent toward the noose. And we have a structural parallel with the actual ritual mysteries in the graded sequential approach with multiple stages. And like initiation, we have the idea of a final supreme goal in which ideas of perfection and culmination are blended by authors with notions of the sacred and of the secret. And this Platonist understanding of initiation was to become the seed for much of the later mystic imagery of initiatory conceptions so prevalent in Western esotericism. So this is another case where, in order to understand Western esotericism, we need to look to Platonism. And to understand Platonism, of course, we must go back to Plato. So at long last, let's go back to Plato. 
Plato, as far as the evidence extends, pretty much invents this idea of philosophy as initiation. Earlier philosophers with whom he was certainly familiar had, of course, had deep and complex connections and interactions with the mystery traditions, as we've seen in our episodes on the pre-Socratics. But Plato is the first to do two things. Firstly, to state that the process of philosophic life is an initiatory process with no need of formal rituals of passage. And secondly, to define this initiation in terms of a kind of privileged knowledge of a special sui generis and divine sort. Of course, I hear an alert listener say, of course, early Pythagoreanism in particular may have indeed been an initiatory path in the traditional sense. Certainly our post-Platonic sources see it as such. Of course you're right, gentle listener, but this is the point. The early Pythagoreans seem really to have done some kind of initiation rituals, or at least this is what we assume from their having adopted so many other aspects of mystic culture. But Plato precisely dispenses with the ritual, dispenses with the brotherhood, dispenses with the cultural in and out group dichotomy that you get with a culturally instituted initiatory establishment. In Plato, one person can become an initiate into some mysteries which are not represented by a temple or by a cult or by an initiator or anything, simply by reality itself. Anyway, even if Plato wasn't the first to make this shift, Plato certainly put his stamp on the idea of philosophy as initiation in a way which would become second to none in its influence on later thought. If we take him literally, as his Platonist readers had a strong tendency to do, Plato is not saying that attaining to higher realms of consciousness is like initiation. He's saying that it is initiation. And this makes sense within the worldview which developed based on his writings, and which extends down through the ages through Western esoteric currents. But before we take a look at our two main passages from the Phaedrus and the Symposium, it might be worthwhile to ask the question, how serious is Plato in saying that philosophy is initiation? This is a question which we actually can't answer, to my satisfaction anyway. Plato seems to go out of his way to be ambiguous on this point, as we've come to expect from the master of serious joking and indeterminate irony. But we should be aware that some modern scholars see the whole discourse of the philosophic mysteries in Plato, and also in many of later Platonists, as simply a matter of, quote, imagery. There's nothing deeply serious in saying that the mysteries are philosophy, or philosophy is the mysteries. This is just a a nice, colorful way of talking about philosophy. To quote Clark, Dillon, and Hirschbell in their introduction to Iamblichus's On the Mysteries, quote, Before his time, that's Iamblichus's time, the mystery imagery so popular with Platonist philosophers, going back to Plato himself, was, so far as can be seen, just that, imagery, end of quote. We shall let that remark hang in the air. Our point here is, as always, not to try to get to what Plato meant, but rather to chronicle what Plato said, since what is important for the history of Western esotericism is the way later esotericists read what he said and what they thought he meant. And uh, I actually don't think we can possibly know what Plato meant about this stuff. It's just too far away, mentally, intellectually. So let's take a look at the most important Platonic passages which use this mystery imagery. We won't have time to cover many important instances, such as the Theaetetus and many others, 
but I refer the listener to the notes accompanying this episode for further reading. A lot of work, very interesting work, has been done on Plato's use of mystery. But here, we're primarily concerned with two dialogues, the Symposium and the Phaedrus, which we concentrated on in the previous episode. We'll also need to discuss the Phaedo, a beautiful dialogue in which we actually have Socrates' final discussion with his friends before he allows himself to be executed by the Athenian state. But I've decided that the Phaedo is so good and has so much of interest to students of Western esotericism that it deserves a dedicated episode of its own. So for now, let's turn first to the Phaedrus. We remember from last episode the ascent of the winged souls in that dialogue is not only a narrative of a kind of cosmic ascent, which again may be meant simply as symbolic imagery, or which may represent a belief in an actual cosmic ascent of the soul, that's what some later Platonists certainly thought at any rate, it is also a narrative of progressive initiation. At Phaedrus 249c, 8 through 10, the winged souls, which enjoy memories of the things in the world of forms, are initiates into perfect mysteries, and they are themselves perfect. But the vulgar think them mad. Plato is playing here with the terms telestai, to be initiated, teletai, initiatory rituals, initiations, and the word teleos, which means perfect. Many scholars think that these words actually are genuinely etymologically linked, while others question this, but the point here is that they were certainly linked in Plato's mind, so that the concept of initiation and perfection tend to go hand in hand in Plato and in later Platonist thinking. Later on in the same passage at 250a5, we have the vision of the forms described as Eidon Hieron, the sacred vision or the sacred sight, the sacred viewing, which is another of the technical terms for the moment of culmination in mysteries like the Eleusinian, where it seems light was introduced into the darkness of the Telesterion and the initiates observed certain sacred objects. Scholars have their theories as to what these might have actually been, but of course we can't go into that in a public forum like this podcast. Plato has transposed the sacred viewing of these ritual objects to the higher realities of the world of forms. The imagery continues again at 250b, 9 to c1. These souls, having viewed these sites, have been initiated into the most blessed mysteries, and they celebrated these mysteries domen, literally we celebrated because it's referring to all human beings in their state prior to embodiment because remember human souls reincarnate periodically they celebrated these mysteries in a state of perfection and purity and purity too we recall is a ritual concept from greek religion one must be ritually pure in order to approach religious rituals in general and many of the mystery cults including the eleusinian mysteries had special purificatory stages before the main initiation ritual plato here has divested purification of its ritual paraphernalia purification in the platonic context becomes a purification of the soul not through ritual but through shedding that which pertains to the mortal bodily existence and allowing the soul to become purely immaterial and to consort with immaterial realities here then are the chief passages of the phaedrus myth which directly reference the language and tropes of the greek mystery cults transposing them to a new philosophic semantic sphere but it's perhaps worth reminding ourselves just how intense plato's idea of philosophy here is we're talking about the soul journeying out of the body and basically entering a different world, a world of fundamental absolute truth and dwelling there. So philosophy absolutely is not 
philosophy of the state variety taught in modern university philosophy courses. Plato is talking about something much more magical. Turning to the symposium, we have the iconic episode of the mysteries of Diotima. As we saw last episode, we're at a drinking party at which all the guests have been required to give a speech about love. And when it's time for Socrates to give his speech, he does one of his famous swerves. And having poked and prodded the various speeches about love, which the other speakers at the drinking party have delivered, he says that he's going to recount something that he learned from the mysterious Diotima of Mantinea, a holy woman with powers of prophecy. Diotima instructs Socrates in a type of inner ascent. The philosopher uses eros here as a motor for ascent to the highest realities, in this case the beautiful itself, which is the source of all the particular beautiful things with which one might fall in love. And the journey to the beautiful is framed by Diotima as an initiation. Indeed, Diotima doubts whether Socrates is worthy of the initiation at one point. Plato here is playing around a lot with technical terminology from the mysteries. What are we to make of Diotima being compared to the perfect sophists at 208 C1? That's hoi teleoi sophistai. Is this an ironic use of the echo of the term telestai to initiate, implying that the sophists have a claim, presumably a spurious claim to initiation? Or is this Socrates jokingly insisting on Diotima's own initiated perfection? Or is it simply an innocent use of the normal Greek word for perfect, totally by accident? We may never know the answer to questions like this about this dialogue. But the context does make one think that Plato is riffing on his mystery imagery here in an ironic and multi-layered register. So the, the references and half-references and coy side glances at the technical terms associated with the mysteries come thick and fast in the Mysteries of Diotima passage. At 209E9 and thereafter, Diotima, having delivered her incredible myth about love's parents and about love's daimonic nature, and also having given us the striking imagery of the pregnant male giving birth to beauty in the context of homosexual eros, she prepares to introduce the ascent from love of individuals to love of the beautiful itself. This is the anagoge, the inner ascent, which we discussed last episode. It is at this point that she invokes the mysteries. What she has said so far seems to have been a preliminary initiation, but the knowledge to follow is a deeper initiation, which Socrates may not be ready for. So the passage, as translated by Christopher Gill, runs as follows. Even you, Socrates, could perhaps be initiated in the rites of love I've described so far. But the purpose of these rites, if they're performed correctly, is to reach the final vision of the mysteries. And I'm not sure you could manage this. But I'll tell you about them, and make every effort in doing so. Try to follow as far as you can end of quotation, we then get the iconic description of the inner anagoge toward the ultimate ground of beauty itself. Throughout, the journey is expressed in terms of contemplation using the verb theaomai, another term traditionally used when referring to the viewing of the sacred sites in the mysteries of Eleusis, which themselves may be described as theamata, wonders. Again, the character of the site in question, the contemplation in question, no longer finds its home in the purely ritual, or indeed the purely visual realm, but the ritual and visual vocabulary is transposed onto a new philosophic methodology of epistemological refinement, an inner journey toward the highest reality. 
for laymen, what we're talking about here is a ritual institution wherein people actually looked at some physical stuff that was sacred items of some kind in a temple. And Plato is taking away the stuff and indeed taking away the physical sight and taking away everything else about it and saying knowledge of the highest realities. This is the true initiation. So he's transposing this image of the final revelation, revelatory vision, onto something that is quite different from a vision. There's much more of interest that we could discuss in these two passages from the Phaedrus and the Symposium, but we must move on. And so we refer the listener to the accompanying bibliography. A final all-important mystic episode remains to be discussed before we can say we've looked at Plato's chief uses of the mysteries in his philosophical context, and this, as we mentioned earlier, is the great dialogue the Phaedo. But the Phaedo is so great, indeed, as to deserve its own episode. So its own episode it shall get. We'll be in a better place to appreciate it now that we've discussed the philosophical transposition of mystery in Plato a little bit, and we will have to hark back too to our discussions of Pythagoreanism, because the Phaedo was regarded in antiquity, and is still regarded by many scholars, as one of the chief sources for Plato's supposed Pythagoreanism. It also contains an amazing cosmic myth involving geometry, metempsychosis, and much else. The usual platonic thing, in other words. But a particularly poignant myth in that Plato gives the myth as Socrates' valedictory speech to his friends before he goes ahead and commits suicide at the state's behest. This dialogue has it all, so be sure to tune in next time for Plato's Phaedo. As for the present episode, we should perhaps reflect for a moment before we finish on what Plato is doing with his appropriation of mystic terminology. An essential element of background here is, it seems to me, the traditional role of the mysteries as places where humans would go to make more direct contact with the divine than they usually did. This is perhaps what made the mysteries such a good model for what Plato wants to say in the first place. Our Montes and other divinely inspired speakers from the last episode are relevant here too, in traditional Greek thought, the thought that Plato was busy critiquing, but which also provided the matrix of norms which he and his audience lived within and thought within, certain special people were inspired by the gods directly, and humans also dealt with the gods through rituals. Diotima, in her discussion of the daimones in the symposium, explained that the daimones convey the prayers and sacrifices of humans to the gods, and the command and the gifts of the gods to humans. They're also responsible for the gifts of prophecy, divination, and ritual expertise. In short, the daimones, of whom love, let us remember, is one, make the whole institution of sacred ritual and divinatory practice function. And through this framework of religious and magical practice, mankind obtains divine inspiration. Now this is Plato's take on how all that works, at least in one passage. And one reading of that passage about daimones might be that Plato is giving a philosophical account of how ritual practices might be thought to function. It's through the intermediary agency of daimones, thus preserving the transcendence of the gods while enabling humans to have genuine access to the gods at the same time. Socrates' discussion of divine mania in the Phaedrus deals with similar themes. Humans can access a source of true knowledge which comes to them from outside, from the gods themselves. When this wisdom takes them, they seem mad to other people who are not in the grips of the divine frenzy, but they're actually being possessed by higher realities. And higher realities, in Plato's thought, are, as we have seen, immaterial forms, primal grounds of particular realities like good and beautiful, which we see reflected here in our everyday waking life. Oh, and planetary gods, of course. 
Turning back toward the mysteries then, there seems to have been a tradition already in pre-Socratic philosophy of reconsidering, reshaping, and rethinking the traditional wisdom associated with mystery cults, the esoteric logoi, which were shared with the initiates as part of some initiations. As we've said, knowledge of these logoi did not itself count as initiation, but there definitely were teachings associated with many cults. Pythagoreanism, whatever form it actually took, certainly seems to have had elements of initiatory religion in it. Both Parmenides and Empedocles used elements of mystic imagery in their poems. And of course, the Derveni Papyrus bespeaks an interpretive tradition based on the Orphic poems, which are themselves modeled in some respects we think on Bacchic and other mystic teachings, but reading those poems as esoteric philosophic materials to be deciphered by those in the know. So all of this is background to what Plato is doing in his own refashioning of the mysteries, and was probably similar in a way to what Plato has been doing in our passages we've been discussing, refashioning traditionally revered sources of wisdom so as to bring them in line with new philosophic ways of thinking. Or, as we've seen in the case of Heraclitus, a thinker might reject the wisdom of the mysteries as no wisdom at all, but preserve the idea of pure initiations, declaring that the mysteries as performed are in fact blasphemy, but that there are still true mysteries which are indeed holy. It's just that no one except Heraclitus knows what they are. It's clear anyway that Plato had a rich tradition of precedence for what he was doing in his mystic passages, but it's also clear as always with Plato, that he brings something new to the table. And the most important new thing he brings to the table, in my view, is that he equates initiation primarily with a type of transcendent knowledge. Plato has de-ritualized initiation. Again, he tells us not that the ascent of the winged souls in the Phaedrus is like initiation, he tells us that it is initiation. Structurally, what we're seeing is an established mainstream cultural institution, the Mysteries, being appropriated, and the original context being chucked away in favor of what we can rightly call an esoteric approach. The platonic journey toward the higher realms of knowledge is paradoxically open to anyone, in theory, but closed to all but the exceptional few souls in practice. Even Socrates is probably not worthy, as we've seen. We see here in utero a whole dialectic of privileged transcendent knowledge starting, as it were, in the mainstream, so beginning with these official religious ritual practices, but making a claim to be the true, pure, properly understood inner meaning which the mainstream actually misses. So we will see this again and again in the history of Western esotericism. There is an exoteric religious tradition X, and they have ritual Y, but it is misguided, and we, the esoteric interpreters of tradition Z, are here to tell you the true meaning which lies beneath the outer layers of superstitious rituals. You know the tune. This is esoteric interpretation of religion. In our discussion of our two Platonic passages, we've hardly been able to emphasize the importance of these passages for later esoteric history, but their importance will emerge in the course of the podcast. Another thing we've been unable to do justice to is the strange beauty and power of these passages. Plato is somehow able to take a metaphor of a chariot flying up into the sky, or a strange wise woman narrating a rather bizarre theory of men becoming pregnant and giving birth in beauty, and make these bizarre conceits gripping, moving, and moreover philosophically staunch to the point where they're read very seriously even today 
by people whose view of philosophy extends beyond the mundane. So do go and read these dialogues for yourself, if you haven't already and if you have the chance. And moreover, do join us next week for what will be our final look at a platonic dialogue on this podcast. And what better final dialogue than the dialogue in which Socrates speaks his final words, Plato's Phaedo. Join us for that, and in the meantime, stay esoteric.